Hello, welcome to Stuff You Should Know About Oil and Gas Production. This podcast is brought to you by Kimray. You can visit us at kimray.com. This is our full slate of training materials, quick tips, videos, and other resources. My name is Curtis. I'm here with Kyle, as usual. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Chris. How are you? Doing great, man. We've, we've got a special guest on today. Uh, so his name is Justin Overstreet. And I got this from your LinkedIn, Justin, so don't get mad at me. But it says, he spent more than 20 years growing and leading teams uh, the majority in the creation, implementation, and ex- execution of safe- safety systems, primarily in the oil and gas industry, carries a certification as a master trainer from the National Center of Construction Education and Research, and a designation as a qualified person for fall protection, and several certifications in rigging and lifting, which I'm curious about and want to get into. Uh, Justin cur- currently serves as the vice president of safety with Wildcat Oil Tools. Uh, and the host of the Street Smart podcast. Did I get that all right, Justin? Yeah, whoever wrote that knows a uh, um, knows how to use fancy words to make yeah, me sound more impressive no. than I probably really am. That was good, man. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. So before I I do want to hear about your current endeavors, but but your bio just several things jumped out. So I wanted to we can just start with where you where you grew up, Texas, Oklahoma, somewhere in that region. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Midland, Texas, which is pretty much how you end up in the oil and gas industry. Uh, you just, that's what do you do. Uh, and my dad had service businesses my entire life growing up. So I watched him, you know, growing businesses. And, and then, you know, when tough times would hit, I watched some of the sacrifices that had to be made and, and watched him auction a business off. And, you know, I've seen some some pretty interesting things. But, uh, you know, in, at the end of the day, um, man, Midland's a great place to to make connections. It's a great place to to be from. If you're in oil and gas, you end up with a certain level of immediate street cred when you walk back in. Now I live in Houston. So when you go back, people that don't know you, they're like, yeah, you're from Houston. I was like, no, nah, man, I spent 33 years in this town. So uh, it, it has helped in, in that way. But uh, yeah, man, born and raised in Midland, Texas, ended up in oil and gas and, uh, and then ultimately ended up going down um, safety, quality, risk management, that type of thing. And um, been a great career. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I saw I saw your your Red Raider back there. You went to Texas Tech. Was that a good experience? Uh, yeah. Well, of course I went to Texas Tech. It's a hundred miles north of Midland. Uh, we called it Midland High North. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Texas Tech was great, man. I I, uh, I it's it's a great school. It's been a lot of fun over the last few years to see them actually do well in all sports except football. But um, I was trying to remember they're a like 90s right so like they were starting it was kind of their start of their climb right uh in football always we were not great i mean it wasn't good at all but i mean the basketball team was good uh we went to the you know march madness a few times when i was there and then um you know the last few years we've had a sort of a, a perennial contender in our baseball team and and stuff and i love baseball my brother played baseball uh at all three levels to include you know minor league pro level and so been a huge part of our lives as as you know he's my only brother so it's been a huge part of my life that way and, and it's fun to watch you know your kind of hometown team and get some recognition on a national stage oh that's cool now who do you have a mlb team you follow we lived in fort worth i would follow the rangers uh just because it you know it's hard not to and then uh you know living in houston now um won a couple of world series one with an asterisk and then uh, <laughs> the other one feels like it's more real but uh it's it's a lot of fun to to, to be a, in town in a town that wins a world championship is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, man, they're good. Is it is it climate controlled in their uh, was it Minute Maid? 
It is. Yeah, there, there's a roof. It, it's a retractable roof. So, you know, in the summertime, the evening game, they'll have it open sometimes. Um, but uh, for the most part, when it reaches about, when when baseball season hits about May, mid-May, we, we start shutting the roof pretty much 24-7. Yeah, dude, I, we were talking off air. Like, I'm so soft. If I'm going to be in Houston, I need to be inside. <laughs> Well, you know, they, they just built that new uh, baseball stadium in Arlington That's for right. the Rangers, and they made it indoor, like a retractable roof, because when when you'd watch them, they would start the year off super hot, and then, you know, long July time frame, they would go through like a 30-game skid where they would just maybe win 20% of the time, and people were like, well, they're obviously overheating because it would be so hot in that, in that ballpark. I went to a game, uh, a playoff game in that stadium, in an afternoon and we thought we were going to have heat strokes. Like it was so hot. Yeah. So, uh, I mentioned the, the certification of, of rigging and, and, uh, lifting you. So one of the things on your bio was this, this Derek rig worker, uh, program or rescue program. Can you tell me about that? What you, you kind of initiated that or how'd that work? So it's pretty unique. I was working at the time. Uh, I was hired by Neighbors Well Services, which was an old pool company, and basically Neighbors Corporate, na- Neighbors Industries, had purchased pool out in West Texas. I was still in Midland at the time. And uh, the vice president of safety for the, the company, his name is Steve Olson. He and I are still in contact. It was in Sugarland, so just south of Houston here. And uh, so he and I, we go to the drag races every year and stuff, so I still see him quite a bit, um, or often anyway. And uh, he wanted to bring in a program, start a program that uh, would address the, you know, very real risk of a derrick worker falling through the fingers of a tubing board and being suspended, you know, 80, 90, 100 feet off the ground. And then how do you get that guy down? And and how do you get him down uh, in an expedient manner so that he's not having to stay up there for a long period of time? And so I was the first person in the United States that that company, that neighbors hired to build this program. And, uh, man, they, neighbors was amazing. They gave us basically a blank slate said, build this, um, how you'd build it. And I mean, I was pretty young still at the time. I was, I was think I was in my late twenties when that was going on. And so I was, you know, I just said, yeah, can I have an old rig? And they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, just a rig you're going to get rid of or whatever. Just all needs the winch line to work. And, uh, and they did, they set that up in Odessa and we would hang a, a full size, you know, mannequin out of the thing and we'd rescue it four days a week. And, uh, two of those days, at least a week, we'd have to tell the police, no, it's not a real person. Uh, cause people would see it and they'd call and it was kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, we designed a program for, um, you know, specialized tools and procedures and equipment and, and trained, uh, I want to say I trained over, uh, probably 1100 people in that, that program. And then we adopted it nationwide. So essentially, I was told after it got started, there was kind of a pilot. And I was like, well, what if it wouldn't have worked? And uh, no one really answered that question. Great. But it worked awesome. And so we we put fall protection specialists all across the country. And I got to, you know, go work with them. And, and uh, it, was a, it was a lot of fun, man. It was a pretty cool program. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really neat. So was there a, with that program, was there a goal to have a certified individual uh, on these rescue techniques on every single drilling rig? Uh, so yeah, there were workover rigs, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, how, how do you have, um, a, at least two or three people that know how to do that? So you would need, uh, one person essentially would be the operator. He's running the winch line on the rig, uh, because that's what you're ultimately attaching the person to. 
And then you would have to have someone that was a floor hand be able to ascend the derrick with the rescue equipment, know how to set that up when he got to the tubing board. Then again, this is someone that, you know, does probably doesn't want to be in the tubing board right. or has been in the past and no longer has to be or, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you're teaching that person how to use equipment they're not accustomed to using. And, uh, and it was awesome, man. We, we, we had a, a, the, it was a full day course and, uh, the whole morning was, we called it our ground school. Basically here's how the equipment works. Here's how the process is, the procedure, here are things to consider, essentially just classroom training, hands-on, here's the equipment, how it, how it functions. Uh, and how you'll be expected to use it. Uh, we would then go out to the the rig. Like I said, it was at one of our locations, our Odessa uh, yard. And um, the rest of the afternoon, just one after another, go, I, I would go up in the tubing board. And I would stand in the tubing board with them. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty awesome. So no fear of heights for you. I, I hate heights, uh, but you get over that pretty quick when uh, your <laughs> you livelihood depends on you. Climbing up into the tubing board and dealing with it. Um, and then you'd get those guys that would like to mess with you when they realize that you're a little, maybe not as um, confident. <laughs> they would start kind of moving the thing around with you and everything. Everything moves anyway. But, you know, it's funny. You, you see these, uh, I guess, old videos of people trying to work through their fears and someone puts a spider in their hand or whatever. It really does work. If you force yourself through the problem, uh, you end up getting to a level of comfort that, okay, you know, I'm good. And I understood the equipment I was using, you know, in and out. So I was very confident in that, knowing that if I fall through this thing, you know, hopefully one of these guys remembers what we talked That's about right. this morning and can come get me. That's right. So uh, and maybe I can talk them through it. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the dangers of falling and being stuck in a position like that is the lack of circulation through the legs. Is that right? Because of the harness. Well, actually, uh, it, it's not through the legs. It's uh, it's called orthostatic intolerance. So what it is is the bl blood begins to pool in your legs. So it can't because of several factors. One gravity being the most, but uh, you know the straps and the the pressure that they're going to put on you and stuff. It basically the the blood is unable to recirculate through the leg or out of the legs back up to your extremities. So okay, the body begins doing what the body does. It says, all right, we're gonna you know, lack of a better term, pool our resources and, and then, you know, end up going unconscious. And the normal reaction, if you unconscious, I mean, you see people fall out of formation, like in the military, they lock their knees and fall out. The same principle, uh, the, the body, the natural response of the body is to pass out and hit the ground. So you go in a prone position and the blood can flow back because of gravity, you know, is, is no longer working against it. The problem is all of that happens when you're hanging in a harness, but you don't fall. You just stay in the same position. Uh, and so that there's, um, there, there's some things that you can do, um, to, you know, mitigate that, you know, they have straps and stuff that attach to the harness that you can deploy and stand in to kind of create, um, a little bit of a barrier against that type of risk. But yeah, definitely the risk in, in hanging there is, you know, is you die. Right. What's the uh, what's the expected timeline of of passing out once you do have a incident where you fall? Is there kind of like a? So it was 2008 when I was doing that job. The fact that I remember the word orthostatic intolerance is impressive. <laughs> and you know, ask me that question. I don't think it's long. I think it's somewhere around less than 10 minutes. Probably yeah. I, it's not a long time. Okay, just tell Kyle to Google it. Just yeah. Google it, Kyle. I'll just Google it. Yeah, it's worth a Google, man. Yeah. Good grief. <laughs> So, so now moving forward, you're, you're at Wildcat Tools. Um, 
first tell us about Wildcat Oil Tools. What do you guys do there? Yeah, so we're uh, just a service company, obviously, like anybody else. Uh, we we started off, we were doing uh, blowout preventers and accumulators, uh, you know, those types of, of safety devices. Uh, and then uh, it's grown into several product lines now from uh, fishing and, and rentals to um, through tubing services. Uh, we had Wireline for a while um, and and uh, that division was sold off uh, a few couple of years ago. Uh, but yeah, it's just a, a full service offering of, of fishing and rental. And, and um, you know, we have some proprietary tools as well, which is very interesting that, uh, you know, we, we've got patents on them. And, and one of those is our express drill uh, whipstock system. And that thing's uh, been really successful for us and actually helped propel us into international markets mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, going into Saudi and, and Malaysia and, and, and South America and places like that. So uh, pretty unique, man. And we're not a huge company. We got, you know, a couple hundred employees, but it's a, it's, it's a great atmosphere. And, and again, um, came from a relationship that I made at Neighbors, actually. The, mm-hmm. My boss at Neighbors, uh, a guy named Aaron Marquez, is the uh, one of the founders of uh, Wildcat, among other companies like Flesh Azul Tequila and, you know, um, Ombre Med and, and things like that. It's pretty mm-hmm. impressive mm-hmm. what he's gone on to do. Um, but it's interesting, our paths diverged for like 10 years. And then, you know, he found out I was sort of looking to get back. I'd gotten out of safety in, in oil and gas. I was in tech for a little bit, helping a buddy of mine. And then, um, that kind of ran its course and he found out I was looking and he was like, Hey, we want someone to help us take our stuff to the next level. And, uh, you know, those interviews are always the best interviews when it's like, Hey, when do you want to start? And there's not, you're not really, oh, pressure. Yeah. you're not competing against anybody. You're just kind of going to get the job. You just got to have the conversation. Yeah. I, I keep telling, I was asking about, you know, Texas tech. I've got, my kids are getting a little bit older. I've got one going to graduate next year and one in a few years. And so, uh, I, so that's what I keep telling them is like, man, value the relationships you're making right now. And one's caught on here at Kim Ray a little bit. And I'm like, dude, just, just make good on those relationships because you never know who you're going to meet, who knows a guy, knows a guy that's, you know, going to be your employer one day. So mm-hmm. Yeah, it's legitimately the only thing I can point to to, to really, uh, if there were a through line to any success I've been able to achieve, it's just because I've been able to build relationships really well and, and leverage those relationships at the right time. So important. Everybody says it, but it meant it's so important. Um, it really is. So, so we were joking uh, in our call the other the other week about your your title is vice president of safety, but it's funny how titles rarely tell kind of the whole story. So, uh, how do you describe? I know you've got the safety background, but you you do a podcast, you do a lot of marketing, you do video. What what all? How do you describe your your role with Wildcat, Justin? I've been really really fortunate uh, in pretty much every role that I've, I've had in that I've had people that were my supervisors or people that, you know, are in a leader, leadership position above me that uh, recognize that I get really bored easily and uh, also like to chase shiny things. And so there's never any shortage in companies of shiny things or problems that need to get fixed and things that, you know, no one really wants to address. And, um, and I've, I've made a real, uh, a really good career out of looking at those things and then saying, let me fix that. I want to fix that because I, I really enjoy doing that. And so, I mean, change agents, kind of a stupid term, I think, but that's really kind of what I like to do is, is come in and say, okay, you know, like a wildcat, you know, you hire me to, to be vice president of safety. And also we're an ISO 9001 certified company. So I had all the quality stuff too, but 
you know, that, that sort of, at some point you can kind of put it on autopilot, especially if you have the management team in place that I have at Wildcat, they're amazing. And those guys can, they, they handle it pretty much on their own. And, and again, I, I was very intentional in the way I built and deployed tools for them so that they could do that. And also very intentional in having conversations that, Hey, I'm not married to these things that I'm giving you to be successful with and manage your safety with. Um, so if something does, doesn't work for you, let me know and we'll figure it out. But those guys are great, and they they really embrace that ownership of safety, and and I, and allow me to be able to focus other places at times. And so, because of that, you know, you look at it and you say, okay, well, we have, here's a SharePoint site that Wildcat has, and you're like, okay, well, this looks like every other SharePoint site that um, everyone every company ever worked in has, and it's built by operations people that threw a folder out there because they needed to put some documents in it, and they didn't give any thought at all to the architecture of that or long-term what that should function like or who the manager in Carlsbad, New Mexico, how he's going to interface with that SharePoint site and what, what he's going to need it to do. And, and, um, and so I was like, let me, let me take a crack at that. And so built out uh, all of our SharePoint stuff and it, it kind of revolutionized the business. And then from there, you know, you start thinking, you know, of other ways to, uh, you know, kind of improve what's there and, you know, built out a, a learning management system. And I was like, you know, I've been doing this stuff for 20 years. I have all of the information and all of the, you know, knowledge to do these training courses. Why don't we just do them? And so, you know, for a relatively inexpensive amount of money, you know, you're, you build out an LMS and then it deploys and everybody has an app on their phone and their own personalized dashboards and all of this stuff. And then then COVID hits and you can't find third party people to do your training. And you're like, no big deal. That's a no factor for us. We do our own. And, uh, and it, it really has, again, that went from spending tens of thousands of dollars a year on training to once that's built out, you're spending literally less than five grand a year on training. And so it no brainer. And, and again, without the foresight from the leadership of the company saying, Hey, go, go do this stuff and giving you, you know, basically free reign to just kind of self-manage, uh, and just do that, that, that doesn't get done. And, and again, it, you can't just let anybody do that. Uh, I'm, I am aware that i I tend to be pretty self-motivated in those things. Uh, but if you have the right person, uh, you know, you don't want to get in that person's way either. And, and I've been very fortunate. No one does. That's, that's, this is a good point to, to stick on for just a little bit, because I've been thinking about driving change within a company. And so maybe, maybe I'd be curious your thoughts on that with, with that experience that you're talking about of how, how do you get buy-in, not, not just with your superiors, but with those, uh, those that you're trying to facilitate change with and various stakeholders, what what have you seen that's been successful? What kind of strategies and that kind of things? What I really truly think of myself as is um, an internal consultant. So the, the companies hired me, uh, and I am definitely a W-2 employee, but I don't ever think of myself when I'm interfacing with the operations teams as anything other than someone to make their job easier. And I've seen other safety professionals that it seems like it's the opposite mentality where it's, you know, we're, it's not that they're intentionally trying to make it more difficult, but it's real easy to always introduce another form or always introduce another step to a problem or always this or always that. And you lose sight of the fact that these people, that's not the only thing they're doing that day. And so when I work to get buy-in to, uh, to more directly answer your question, I do it in, in more of almost like I'm a salesman and, you know, working directly with these people. And again, like I said, uh, these other stakeholders that, that have a you know hand in what you're doing and, and say to them, 
from the onset, hey, I'm building these tools for you to be successful. If you don't like what I put in front of you, tell me that because I don't I don't care what it looks like. You're the one that has to use it, not me. Mm-hmm. And and again, uh, on a selfish level, if I if I went the other way and said, here's the tool, use it, I'm ultimately creating more work for myself. Uh, and so if I go to them and say, what do you want it to do? Okay, I'll figure out how to make it do that. Then I've ultimately uh, built you know, more time in for myself because those managers buy in because it's direct input from them that put that tool together and they understand it from the jump because they help build it. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't have a lot of turnover at Wildcat either. I mean, I've been here almost five, I've been here five years in June and our management structure is the same as the day I got here. So we, you, you can develop a lot of rapport that way. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, that's really helpful. Yeah, getting, getting, getting buy-in early, developing ownership of the project that you're working on with with those stakeholders. That's that's good. Kyle, you want to ask kind of about teaching and that kind of thing? Yeah. So uh, we like to ask people, you know, what they most often uh, teach people, what's something that's kind of a, a recurring uh, teaching moment that you have, you know, either with your customers or internally in your own company. Uh, ultimately, what I talk to people about most frequently is accountability. And not like, hey, you missed this step, so we're gonna smash you and make you accountable to it. It's, hey, that step was missed. Even if you don't feel like you own that miss, own it, and figure out where you fit in that miss. And and I, I do that in my own life. Uh, I do that with my kids. I do that with my marriage. I do that with you know jujitsu. I do that with everything in my life. You know, I look at it and say, you know, if this is happening and it's adverse to what I want it to be then what am I failing to do or what am I not doing to, to make it get to that, you know, desired end product? And, and I, I talked to that, I, I talked that to everyone uh, and I try to instill that in everyone, whether they report to me, which no one at Wildcat reports to me. So uh, it's, it, I literally am a, a team of one. And so it's only through accountability I'm able to affect any influence throughout the organization. And then beyond that, uh, and I'm not saying holding others accountable, I'm saying being willing to say to somebody, you know what, I missed that, that's on me. That that establishes so much credibility from the jump. And so when you have those conversations with people and you say, yeah, I missed that, I won't miss it again, or those guys know that they can call you and you might be on vacation, uh, but you know because you're a team of one and you do some things that are pretty unique to the company, you better have all your stuff with you at all times that you're accountable to them and and you make sure that you can help them whenever they need it and meet them at their point of need. Uh, and, and so whenever I, I look at what I try to instill in people, it's generally just accountability. And with that, you, you're 90% of the way home if you can just hold yourself and others around you accountable. Yeah. And having nobody directly report to you probably gives you a lot of freedom to, to be able to affect a, a wider range uh, within the company? Uh, it does. And it, it can also be a limiter. It, it is not a limiter at Wildcat. I've had other places that I've been associated with where it can't and limit you just because um, it's all on you to do that. Um, I don't know what the size company would have to be before, um, you know, just having a one-man band basically is uh, is limiting, but it's certainly not the size that we're at right now. And I, it's not going to be the size for a while. And I say that Again, because uh, our management team is is amazing, and they truly own safety. I mean, I've said this in other uh, podcasts, and this truly is a, a philosophy that I 
I adhere to when it comes to sort of the, the programs I put together. I, I've worked at other companies. Davers was one of them where they their philosophy in safety was we would put a safety manager over every single yard. We, you know, so every yard had a safety person in it. Or, you know, if they had two yards that were fairly small but geographically close, they might have one that serviced both. But essentially, you'd say one for one. And then you tell that manager of that yard, you own safety. Well, guess what? That guy, you're, you're to, to me, that was always a contradictory message, right? You're saying, hey, manager, you own safety, and here's your safety guy. Well, I, if I'm the manager of that yard, I have all kinds of other things that I own other than safety. So I'm going to let that safety guy, safety guy, all they want to do. <laughs> and uh, and so for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to tell that manager, you own safety. And then I'm going to treat you like a grown man or a grown woman getting paid grown people wages to do grown people things. And I'm going to go on with my life. And if something's not working, you need to tell me. And if you don't tell me, that's an accountability piece. That's not a, that's not a, that's not on me necessarily. Or I would definitely look at it and say, did I fail to communicate it? But uh, for me, it's just really, you know, building that culture of accountability and building that, you know, letting those people know that, yeah, I'm here. I'll do everything I can to help you. And it, it is freeing to your point because you're able to not worry about how you're going to impact anyone in your department or anyone that reports to you based on a decision you make necessarily. But at the same time, it, it's not as freeing as it could be because you're thinking, okay, well, how do I, how do I, how do I maximize my presence? How do I sort of, uh, you know, what can I use as a force multiplier for myself? And technology obviously helps with that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been here uh, in the industry somewhere around 20 years, uh, Justin. What I'd be curious, just kind of from your perspective, what are maybe a, one or two things you've seen change or how have you seen the industry as a whole develop, evolve, change? So in oil and gas, uh, in general, I'll get to it, but in safety specifically and, and quality and risk management and stuff, and when I first started, it was really rudimentary. You know, it was, you know, kind of here are these videos, watch these videos, and here are the tests, and here are the answers to the tests and here's your card and I'll go to work. And I, I can remember going and working in gas plants and places like that. And you didn't, you, you wore hard hats, but you didn't wear FRs. You didn't wear safety glasses necessarily. Uh, uh, you'd be in a compressor house all day, you know, 12, you know, giant compression, you know, gas compressors in there just humming and no ear, no hearing protection. Uh, so it was something that people understood they needed, but no one really did, you know, much about to what safety is now where you're you're focusing more on behavior you're focusing more on you know what's driving the uh the outcome and most of the time it is behavioral uh so that's that's one area that i've seen really really change that obviously directly um i, I directly touch on it on a daily basis the industry i would say you know coming out of covid and coming back and things starting to get back to where they're going a service company is being a little more responsible with their capital and not just, you know, making ready all of their equipment to be deployed again, doing it on a kind of, uh, you know, yeah, let's see where this is going uh, kind of thing. And and I think that's going to service them well in terms of, you know, returns and those types of things. Uh, and then also, you know, this year, the that OTC here in Houston, the Offshore Technology Conference, just the the level of, of use of technology uh, and AI and stuff like that, I think it's starting to get adopted. And that's, that's, that's something I've always been really passionate about is technology. And something I've always found interesting in oil and gas is just very um, slow to change or slow to embrace change. But I think as um, you're seeing a younger workforce enter oil and gas, you're starting to see that embracing of technology um, more readily. And, and I think that's going to really, I think it's going to 
accelerate the amount of, of change that happens in the industry for the good. Yeah. So with, with somebody just starting out in the industry, uh, kind of bringing that uh, technology mind with them, what's, what's some advice you can offer somebody just starting out either on the service side or production or just in our industry? Look for a low-tech solution currently being deployed and figure out a high-tech way to solve that problem and start your own business. You'll be a millionaire. Yep. Let me segue there. Uh, Justin hosts Street Smart uh, podcast, and um, I listened to uh, I think it was Opla Energy, a couple a couple gentlemen from there that you were interviewing about their their startup in uh, pressure drilling. Anyway, it was just it was fascinating to learn about their mindset and about how they're using technology to attack uh, and develop a business. Um, I, I'm guessing, so you talked to, it's kind of an entrepreneurs-based podcast, right? Yes. How'd you get started doing that or why'd you do that? Well, so I was doing another podcast with a guy named Jeff Peoples. Jeff owns, um, at the time he was uh, running uh, Tomahawk Safety, which is a you know specialty glove uh, PPE type company. Um, he's now uh, founder and, and CEO of a company called Sentinel, but he also started a, uh, a podcast called the Mission Zero Podcast, and I was his first guest. And Jeff was unique because he was, you know, he know he knows a lot of people in safety and risk management, but he's not a safety person; he's a sales guy. Uh, and so after the first one, we were sitting there talking afterwards, and and he asked if I might be interested in co-hosting, and I was sure. So <laughs> shiny object, right? Begin co-hosting. Yeah, why not? And yeah. I, I, first of all, I'll listen to the podcast forever. Yeah, I just enjoy the the platform a lot. Once you get into it, you you realize, oh, it's you know not that hard to really set one up and and all of that. And once you get the equipment and you understand sort of a few different things, you can you can deploy one fairly easily. Um, why not, man? I mean, it, it, it's pretty fun. But not to interrupt, but you, I, but I, I love it. how and, Justin says like. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have an LMS, so I just built an LMS. It wasn't that hard. I <laughs> organized the architecture for SharePoint. It's not a big deal. So anyway, not a, not a big deal for you, but go ahead. I say those things, I look back on it probably a lot more romantically than it was, but at the time it was a lot of watching YouTube videos and trying to figure that stuff out. And, and uh, you know, the LMS came about because my wife had asked me to fix something when I got home and I didn't know how to do it. I was like, I'll just look at YouTube. And I was looking at YouTube and then it hit me. I was like, why don't, why don't I do this? I you know, do all this. I need is a mic. Like, I, mean, I could do this. And I was yeah. like, I can do this for safety stuff. And it, it my brain went a, a million miles an hour that direction. So uh, anyway, I was I was co-hosting that um, Mission Zero podcast. It's still out there, and they're doing some amazing things. Aaron Marquez calls me one day, and he says, uh, hey, wh why are you doing a, a podcast with somebody else? Why don't you do your own thing? I said, well, well first of all, it's his. So I can't just like, I'm gonna, hey, man, I'm going to do this and uh, I said, well, yeah, I could. Uh, and he said, well, why don't you? And I said, well, I, I don't want to do it on safety. And he said, well, why not? And I said, because, I mean, I do. that's what I do. He said, well, what would you do it on? I said, entrepreneurship. I said, but I wouldn't do it on like, hey, you know, Aaron, tell me about Wildcat Oil Tools. I would do it on, hey, Aaron, tell me about Aaron. And uh, the concept is, you know, a long-form discussion, sort of human interest, and, uh, and see where it goes. And, and, man, I've really had a great time doing it. It's been a lot of fun. I've, I've gotten to talk to some really interesting people. Those guys at Opla were amazing, um, you know, and, and just it's been really good. So it, it that's really kind of how I got started. And then obviously you go through the process of trying to figure out what you need and and how to how to do that. And then you just do it. It's not that hard. You just do it. Uh, I love it. That's what I'm going to take away from this conversation. It's like, man, just figure it out and do it. Just find a text. Hey, just do it, man. Do it. Hey, hey like just it. fix it, man. Yeah. yeah. 
Any other questions for, for Justin before we let him go, Kyle? Yeah, we, we like to uh, do recommendations at the end of our, our podcast. So we'll ask our guests that you have any recommendations, whether that's books or shows or, or other things that you've, uh, you've enjoyed and that you would recommend to others. Does it have to be related to nope. work or industry or anything? Nope. So it can be uh, anything. I'm, I'm now, well, I'm currently watching Peaky Blinders for the third time. Oh, wow. Because uh, it is the best series ever made wow. in my mind. I love it. It's, it's a, just an amazing series. Give me a little all bit. Of it's awesome. It's like British. It is. It's uh, set in Birmingham. Um, essentially, it's loosely modeled after an actual gang back in the, that day. But um, yeah, it's just an amazing, uh, everything, I was telling my wife, every character in here, in the show is an amazing character and every actor in the show is amazing at that character. It's just, it's one of those shows. It's just a, and again, it's not for everybody, but you know, going with the accountability piece, um, Jocko Willink, I don't know, you know, some listeners will know who he is. You guys may also know who he is. I know who he is just because of like jujitsu and uh, all the other kind of stuff that I'm into, but uh, he has a book called extreme ownership. Um, and that from an accountability piece is, um, an awesome, awesome book to read and uh, and really is a he's an amazing person so uh, it's it's definitely worth your time if you really want to understand you know what accountability looks like and and the way he does it is he'll talk about his time in the navy seals uh and deployed to ramadi and places like that that are you know horrific places to be deployed to and then he'll in the chapters bring it back to this is what that looks like in a business application so uh, you know, from a, an accountability standpoint, I would I, I can't recommend that book strong enough. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I've got one. I'll be sure, but you got one, Kyle. You got a recommendation? Yeah. What do you got? So uh, I recently moved. Um, I moved kind of out away from the city onto uh, three acres, and that's what I would recommend. It's been <laughs> it's been awesome. <laughs> uh, just being away from people, having your own space, and having a piece of property to uh, take care of. I don't think I've ever been as exhausted as I have been in the past couple of weeks, but in a, in a good way. Though. In a good way. Okay. Yep. I'll recommend that. So I just took a long road trip over the holiday and uh, I listened to an episode of This American Life. And there was one called uh, Return to Childhood. It's episode 351. And they break it up into three different stories or four maybe. But the last one reminded me of it was a story about this lady going to college in the 90s. And it was like, just like stuff we used to do just to create fun before there was so many like smartphones and internet around. And so it was like, they created this character called giant man. They put these flyers around campus and they had their friend, like the two, two guys. So one would stand on the, or sit on the other shoulders and wear just a big robe and appear out of the bushes and go just in the kind of the main quad. I am giant man. I love you all. And I've brought you butterscotch. And then like, sort of like fade away and disappear. And so there became like a cult following of Giant Man. Like, why is he here? What's he gonna do? And there, anyway, it was a very, it got me giggling on the road in Mississippi at like 2 a.m. I was like, oh, that's really funny. Yeah. So, You're not gonna pull that in the South, man. Somebody will make exception to Giant Man <laughs> exactly in an extreme right. way. That's exactly yeah. right. Bullets will start flying. Well, I've really appreciated the conversation and enjoyed it, Justin. Uh, thanks for joining us. And we'll have links to Wildcat Oil Tools and uh, Street Smart and all the other things that we've discussed uh, in today's show notes. And thank you, listener. We'll catch you next time on Stuff You Should Know About Oil and Gas Production. <laughs>